fucking deals. But he willingly obeys his dad because obedience was more important than the way he felt. But look at what he does in obedience. He doesn't just follow the specific or the letter of what his dad asked him to do because his dad says, go find your brothers at Shechem. He could have gone back home. Hey, Dad, I went to find my brothers where you told me they were, and they weren't there, and I'm back here. If, if I knew the ten, the nine other brothers that I was going to see hated me, I would have had any excuse and quick reason to justify going back to Dad's house. Remember, in Dad's house, I'm the favorite. Yeah, it's Kevin you the best from all over the world. Your number one live podcast every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. East. I found a beautiful article here on this particular website, desiringgod.org. And it's interesting uh, what this gentleman thinks about leadership. Now we're talking about leadership today. David Mathis, this is what he thinks. In his article, he says, From before we can ever remember, we've been indoctrinated at nearly every turn with the idea that being a leader means getting the gold star. Leadership is a form of recognition, a kind of accomplishment. The path to privilege, being declared a leader is like winning an award or being identified among the gifted. He says leadership is a form of success and since you cannot, you can do whatever you dream and can achieve whatever you set your mind to, you too can be a leader at home, at work, in the community, in church. Why would you settle for anything less? Leadership means privilege. And no generation has considered itself more entitled to privilege than ours. One of the distinct marks of Saturn's influence in our society, evidence that the God of this world is blinding unbelievers believers is that leaders load their leadership over those for whom they are supposed to care. The lie may be as prominent and embraced today as it has ever been, but by no means is it new. Now, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 to 28 says that, uh, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow, that's a great turn of events uh, right there concerning leadership. And I think we're going to see that in the example of Joseph uh, today. Hey, it's great to be with you all again tonight in South Africa is doing wonderful. We're getting ready for a cold snap for those of you up in the east part of Africa. Friday morning, Thursday morning is going to be negative three Celsius. I know my friends tell me when it hits negative three, it's no longer Africa, but we're still part of Africa. It's just going to be a little bit chilly, but we're doing great. Thrilled to be with you all tonight. I did read for us a verse earlier on as we started from Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25 to 28, talking about the Gentile rulers who lord it over them uh, instead, and how Christ flips the cards and says the greatest of them all is the servant of all. Uh, from your experience, uh, Paige, as a leader, and uh, now um, 
leading the ministry of World of Life across the entire continent of Africa. How have you seen this principle in play that when you serve, it's better than loading it over them? Of course, we see, uh, uh, what's his name, Joseph uh, serving people, uh, starting as a servant from uh, Potiphar's house and then coming to the prisons. And uh, these gentlemen are here asking him, uh, they're worried and he's concerned for them. You can see that concern uh, for them. Um, and, and he tells him, encourages him, his, his concern is for people. But how have you seen that play out in your experience as a leader, uh, Peggy? You know, I think if you remove God from the situation, it becomes very simple for us to follow natural instincts, which means when we're given leadership, we're given power. And so to lord it over. Now, this could be in a leadership, in a job. It can be um, for myself. I'm a dad. I'm a father. I'm the leader in my home. Um, Mm. It can be a leader at work. We can be placed in a management role. And it's so important. Um, I've been watching... Uh, the TV series out the I'm gonna I'm gonna forget the name of it. David, help me with it here on the life of Christ. That's just been out. They have season one and two, um, and it's been really interesting as they've been showing a depiction of Christ's life on Earth as he walked with his disciples, showing them what servant leader look look looks like, and I think mm-hmm. he shows it to us and he teaches it to us because that's not naturally where we go to. Um, and it's, inter- it's interesting how that plays out. Obviously, Jesus in the human form showed us the best example, and that was to be a servant leader. Uh, but when we get to leadership, we've spent many years being uncomfortable. And sometimes we fall into the trap that now it's a time for us to be comfortable when really Jesus, God himself in the form of the Son, washed his disciples' feet. What a perfect example of servant leadership. I'm much happier preaching about that passage than I am having to live that because it just gets dirty and messy as you learn, as I learn how to serve people instead of lording it over them. And so it's interesting how it plays out. One day I might do fine in my job, but in my home I might blow it. The next day maybe I do fine in my home and I blow it at the job. And so constantly learning, constantly filling ourselves with scripture, uh, like you said, it's very non-African to look at the African example of how Joseph Mm -hmm. served as a humble leader. Hmm. That's when you talk about the non-Africanness, I really understand uh, exactly what you're saying. Some of the words we kept hearing from the elders is go and play. Uh, you don't you don't just hang around <laughs> elders anyhow unless they've called you to bring water or to do something. Uh, leadership was served. Leadership is still served. I mean, if you look at our political scene even today, um, unfortunately, they grab as much as they can because it's a privilege. It's a privilege. But I think we are called to be different. And the greatest leaders are the servants of them all. I'm, I'm really excited about tonight, and I'm hoping that uh, each one of you will be excited as well as we come uh, by the end of our show uh, tonight. Mr. John Page, it's at this point in time that I'm going to ask you to take us through what you have prepared for us uh, from God's Word. Page, you're welcome. I love the song that you were playing earlier, uh, Pressure that makes us into diamonds. Mm. And it was an interesting thing as you were playing that song, awesome song, 
Um, I was thinking very clearly that I love diamonds. Uh, when I when I married my wife, I gave her a ring and it had a, a small diamond chip in it. South Africa, we have the Kimberley Diamond Mines, the largest open pit mining of diamonds. And the love for diamonds and the value for diamonds is something that most people could agree with. However, the other part of that song is what stood out to me. When the pressure is on, he's making diamonds. And I had to ask myself, do I often get caught in the trap of asking God to get rid of the pressure out of my life? And in essence saying, God, I don't want to become what you want me to become. I'd rather be comfortable. Please, can't you remove that pressure? Oh, but still produce a diamond just without pressure. And it's not something that's possible. And so I love that song. And to be honest, I have to change the way that I pray and probably change what I pray for instead of asking God to remove pressure. God help me to learn through and under the pressure. And that's what we see in Joseph's life. We see this um, incredible character. We talked about on Monday, his environment didn't change who he was. That's really the definition of, of integrity being the same person when nobody else is around. He's a man of integrity. We saw his circumstances were horrible. He was hated. Then instead of being killed, he was sold. He was bought as a slave. He was lied about as a slave, and he was thrown in prison. And his integrity didn't change. He was being made into a diamond through incredible amounts of pressure. And that pressure was allowed and used by God for God to get the honor and for God to get the glory. And tonight, I hope you, I hope you jumped in and have been reading the life of Joseph, starting there in Genesis chapter 37. And tonight, we kind of pick up at the be- beginning of chapter 41. And I realized I shared uh, quite a bit of the story on Monday. And tonight, I'm just going to try to hit highlights. But I, I'm hoping that you've read the story And if not, it's not too late. Jump in and continue to read it. You could read the story 10 times. You could read it 20 times and not get everything out of it. But if you've you've been refreshed, and David's done a great job of doing some of those audio clips to keep us reminding about that, uh, let's kind of run through a big time frame tonight. And let me just point out the highlights to you. Chapter 41 says, two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. And so two years later, Joseph was in prison. Joseph had interpreted the dream of the butler and of the baker, and both interpretations came correct. And he said, please, when you get out of prison, remember me. Well, they forgot him. Two years later is where we pick it up. And one of them here, the one that lived, not the one that died, um, said, to the, to, said to Pharaoh, you know what? I, I have been wrong. I remember my faults, he says in verse 9, because Pharaoh had had a dream and nobody could interpret the dream. So the, the butler says, listen, it turned out that this young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards was there, and he interpreted our dreams. Pharaoh sends immediately for Joseph. Can you imagine Joseph? He doesn't have any news forecast. He doesn't have anyone tweeting that he's going to get out of prison that day. All of a sudden, it's like another day. He's in prison. He's worked himself up to be the head prisoner, works for the, the, the prison warden. And all of a sudden they said, Joseph, come. And where are you going? Oh, you're going to go see Pharaoh, the head of all Egypt. You better change and shave and clean up. Here's some new clothes for you. 
you're going to see Pharaoh. And he goes to Pharaoh. He has an opportunity now to be out of prison, to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to put himself in a favorable position, no longer to be forgotten about, but to do something for the head of the entire nation of Egypt and probably have an opportunity to get out of prison. What does he say? Verse 15 there of chapter 41 says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph completely blows the opportunity. He completely ruins every opportunity that he had because in verse 16 he says, I'm not able to. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And it's interesting, if you look at the evangelistic push that Joseph has, remember, he's been lied about, he's been sold as a slave, he was lied about in slavery, he was put in prison, now he stands before Pharaoh, and instead of claiming any ability, he points it all to God. He only has one shot with Pharaoh, and what does he do? He tells him about God. Because Pharaoh was used to worshiping and believing in thousands of gods, not one almighty creator of the universe, God. Joseph, instead of being concerned about his environment, instead of being concerned about his circumstance, he was concerned about the gospel. He knew Pharaoh would be lost forever if he didn't know who the one true creator of the universe was. He says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's incredible the little things that Joseph did as God was building into him during these continued circumstances and environments that put pressure on him to change and train him to be the leader of a nation. He doesn't claim credit. He completely gives credit to God. And then he interprets the dream. He goes on. He says, this is exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of more abundance than you've ever had. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. One of the things that can be said in South Africa, and maybe it's true there in Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, you know your countries better than I do, is this whole aspect of planning ahead. Joseph interprets a dream, but then he also gives the solution to Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh, you need to plan ahead. God said you've got seven years of plenty. You need to find someone and put them in charge of a plan to save up for these seven years so that during the seven years of famine, you'll not die, but you can survive and you can succeed. He basically gave him the entire economic package for the next 14 years for the nation of Egypt. And he tells him in verse 33, he says, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Once again, Joseph's a man without guile. He doesn't try to position himself. He doesn't claim any credit. He doesn't say, hey, Pharaoh, look what I just did for you. He says, look what God did for you. This is God's interpretation. This is God's solution. You need to find a discerning and wise man. And it's incredible because Pharaoh literally agrees with him, agrees with the plan, and he turns to the people by him and says, we need to find such a person, and literally looks at Joseph and says, you're that person. Understanding this context blows my mind because here you have a foreigner. He was from a different country. He had been here now many, many years, 
15, 18 years, and yet, and he served a different God. He served one God, not thousands of God. And yet Pharaoh says, because of your God, I am going to put you in charge of the entire country, the entire nation of Egypt. He was a foreigner, and now he's number two in charge. He's given the most power. He's given, basically, um, put in charge of the economic resources, of the agricultural resources of the entire nation, and everybody must work and carry out his plan. Now, put yourself in that situation. Think about that. I, I've thought about that as I've studied this. I come from prison, and now I'm given comfort. What's the first thing I do? Do I buy a BMW X5? Do I buy my mom and family all a house? Do I maybe punish those who threw me into prison and take care of those that I was in prison with? Joseph doesn't change because none of these new circumstances are about him. It's all about God. God continues to put him on mission. Now that he's in charge, he doesn't change. He remains the same person, which is incredible as we look at that in the context, but the story doesn't stop. You know exactly what happens next, right? Seven years of blessing, everything happens. He's riding on top of a wave. They make all sorts of money, all sorts of agricultural savings. He does something incredible. He makes them save ahead. They build more barns. They build storage to be able to take care of the excess crops instead of wasting or throwing them away because he knows in seven years they're going to have famine and they'll have nothing. They need to save ahead. These are some of those characteristics that we looked at even on the Monday evening when we talked about his strategy, uh, his wisdom. How do you set up Egypt to survive a famine? His discipline in doing what God put him into and now a new role, but had been exercised in those other roles. And sure enough, what happens is as seven years go, the famine comes. And as the, they begin the first few years of the seven years of famine, we catch back up in the story in chapter 42. And we see that his brothers and his father and their land in the land of Canaan are running out of food. And Jacob sends them and says, hey, listen, I've heard that Egypt still has food. Everybody in the area realized that Egypt was the breadbasket of Africa at that time. Egypt had done their homework. Egypt was prepared for the famine. And he sends the brothers down. And you can read this in chapter 42 and 43 and 44. The story uh, just plays itself out. If you start to read, you're going to continue to read. You're not going to stop. You can't just read like five verses. you got to read all of 42, 43, 44 45 to catch all of the story. But what happens is the brothers come down and they don't recognize him at all. He gives them a hard time. He actually throws them in prison for three days. He asks about their family and he asks about a younger brother that they mentioned to him. And it's interesting because if you remember the dream when he was just a youth, how many sheaths of grain were going to bow down there was one that was missing in the number, and that was the, that was the youngest brother, Benjamin. And so he hears the brothers talking, and it's even interesting. Look at the language, and we can experience this in Africa because so many people know so many languages. I have friends that know seven and eight languages and hearing in different languages. But every once in a while, we have this opportunity to jump into a country that we don't know the language. Maybe they don't speak Lugandan 
or Kenya run Rwandan or Swahili, or they don't speak Zulu. I went to Mozambique and in Mozambique, they speak Portuguese in Shangan, languages we don't know in South Africa. But Joseph, even though they didn't recognize him, Joseph knew everything they were saying. And it's an incredible picture because Joseph, even at one point, has to leave to gain composure. And we see this happen again as he sends them back. Uh, they, he sends them back with things. Remember, he does the trickery. He puts stuff in their bag. He puts their money back in their grain bags. They get home. They see Jacob. They open it up. They're like, wait a second. We paid for the grain, and now the money's here. So Joseph, even though he heard what was going on, it's incredible how he took advantage of that situation. Almost funny in a way. Instead of being vengeful, he gives them back all of their money. Well, he tells them, if you're coming back, you need to bring this youngest brother of yours. And of course, when they go back and they tell Jacob, there's no way Jacob's going to let that happen. One of the comments that the brothers make as they're standing there by Joseph and he's listening, they said, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. They verbalize that this is happening to us. We're, we're being asked to bring a brother down. We're being thrown in prison for three days because of 18, 19, probably 20 years later. They are carrying the guilt of the wrong that they did to their brother. Absolutely amazing how much guilt will destroy a person when you try to cover it up, not just in doing something wrong, but in covering it up. And that was a tipping point for Joseph because he heard how bad, how sorrowful his brothers were for what they did to him. At that point, he had never heard that. He just knew that they hated him to the point they wanted to kill him and instead chose to sell him. So they go back to the land of Canaan. Jacob says, no, you can't return. But time goes on. They run out of food. It's getting worse. And he says, okay, the oldest son comes and says, listen, we have to go back to Egypt. We're going to die if we don't go back. He says, matter of fact, I will, I will. Remember, they kept one of the brothers back. Joseph kept one of the brothers back until they returned, kept him locked in prison. In chapter 43 and chapter 44, they finally make the decision to return. Jacob, they have the whole family discussion. They send him back down. And it's interesting because as you pick it up there in chapter 44, and he talks about them returning for a second time. And they come back and they said, our Lord, our master, we're so sorry. We intended to pay for everything. And Joseph says, no, you did pay your God. G-O-D, capital G-O-D, must have put the money back in your bags. And isn't that interesting? Because here they are in Egypt. They don't know they're speaking to Joseph. They know that Egyptians believe in thousands of gods. And here they hear what they believe to be an Egyptian acknowledging their God, Jehovah, the one true God, the creator of the universe. But they don't pick up on that. They just, they just hear that and they continue to pass on. And Joseph continues, and he continues to go back and forth and gives him a hard time, and you can read all the conversations there. Judah pleads for Benjamin to save Benjamin's life, but they need to bring him down. They need to see him. He sends them back home. They run after them. They put stuff in their bags. They bring him back, and they said, someone has stolen the precious cup of Joseph. Whoever has that, they're going to be thrown in prison. Joseph had had somebody plant that in the, in the grain sack of Benjamin, they said, no, none of us have. They searched through it. They find it in there. The brothers are tormented now because they said, no, we've already killed our one brother, Joseph. We can't let anything happen. Our father will not live through this again. 
And the whole time Joseph is kind of playing with them and toying with them really to see what had they learned? What did they think about him? And it's interesting because maybe Joseph was being sarcastic. Maybe he was, um, you know, we could say he's having a good time with them. He's kind of rubbing it in. He does have power now. But this is where we see the heart of Joseph. Chapter 45, verse 4 says, Joseph said to his brothers, this is after the return and all of the other drama that's been taking place. He said, please come near to me. And they came near to him. And he says before this, before this, I'm sorry, I'm starting in verse 4, but up in verse 1 of chapter 45, he sends everybody away. In front of his all his tents, he calls out, said, send everybody away from me. Nobody was with him. Send everybody out of the room. And he reveals himself to his brothers. And it says this in verse 2, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer because they were terrified in his presence. Can you imagine what it's like to be that brother? All your drama is consumed about, are we getting food? Are we not getting food? Have we been tricked? Someone planted money. Now they're going to take our youngest brother. We've already gotten rid of our second youngest brother. That's Joseph. And all of a sudden, the man that you're dealing with, that you think is an Egyptian master, looks at you and says, you don't even recognize me, but I'm your brother, Joseph. Everyone thought that Joseph was dead. They sold him into slavery. He's not going to survive. He's in a different country. He's got to be dead at this point. Regardless of what you think as you read chapter 43, 44, if Joseph was being vengeful or spiteful, we see his heart here and that he wept so loudly that he was heard by everyone that he sent out. He was heard by Pharaoh's house. That's not even where he was at. And he tells his brother, it's me. It's interesting. Verse 7 and 8, we read there verse 4 and 5. Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 45, he continues to give credit to God. Verse 7, he says, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your sheep, your cattle, all that you have, and I will sustain you here. It's incredible to walk through this emotion because we hear the, the crying out of anguish as he realized that his brother's regretted having sold him as a slave. They were sorrowful for what they did. They were thinking that their current circumstances were as a payback for what they did that was so wrong. And yet even in that, he says, brothers, you thought you sold me into slavery to Egypt, but God brought me here. You were part of God's plan to bring me here. He saw the bigger picture Talk about understanding circumstances at a whole different level 
than what I get consumed with. I look at my circumstances every day and I can get angry, I can get upset, I can get excited, all about small circumstances right in front of me. Here's Joseph, who as a young 17-year-old, now in his 30s seeing his brothers, understood that God had a bigger plan than he or his brothers ever did. He wasn't bitter against his brothers. He wasn't bitter at God. He never asked to get out of the circumstances that God put him in. He realized it wasn't the brothers responsible, but that God allowed it and used it for good. Promotion did not change Joseph. His position did not corrupt him. That's got to be a prayer for every one of us in our lives, but also for our leaders across Africa, that leaders would be raised up that don't change when they're given money, when they're given a position, when they're given power. Oh, that we all could be, even in our small little area, a humble leader, not one who changes when given a position. A couple of concluding, concluding thoughts as I was reading through some other pastors on, on this story. One of them put it this way. They said, adversity did not harden him. Temptation did not destroy him. Imprisonment did not embitter him. And prosperity did not ruin him. Think about that. Joseph, from a slave to a prisoner to the number one in charge of all of Egypt, having a seven years of plenty in preparation for seven years of famine, saw that God had moved him 20 years before to a different land so that when the famine came, he would be able to help his family live as their savior. Now, there's so many things, and I haven't taken time to point this out, but there's so many things that show that Joseph was a type of Christ, showing us the same examples that we see in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. All along, Joseph gives God the credit. And Dave, I think that's incredible. I think, I think as we look at a leader who has integrity, a leader who has character, a leader who doesn't change when he's given a title and a position of leadership. That's the type of leaders, not, not that we just need in Africa, but that's the type of leader that we need in our neighborhood, in our school, in our job, in our home, when we look at truly being a servant leader. So just some incredible thoughts as we continue in this passage. And we're going to jump into more of these conversations, um, David, on Friday night. Uh, but just some things to challenge us tonight. Let me, let me read this list one more time and then invite you to jump in with us too, David. Adversity did not harden him. Temptation did not destroy him. Imprisonment did not embitter him. And prosperity did not ruin him. As we're going through this, and uh, just like Paige said on day one, it's like a movie, uh, better than a movie in every sense. 
was thinking about the guilt that you talked about, Paige, that the, the brothers had for almost 20 years. And now they're coming back and they're thinking to themselves, what, what, we're being punished for what we did to our brother, Jacob. I mean, uh, Joseph. Now, not to get into conflict resolution now and the, the dynamics that are involved in that kind of uh, um, process, but how important is it, Paige, uh, to let the one that offended you know that they are forgiven? Um, just like uh, Joseph did. How important is that? Yeah, that's an incredible, an incredible truth that you mentioned there. Um, forgiveness sets us free. Bitterness is wanting someone else to suffer pain and yet watching the destruction happen to us. So Joseph, over those 20 years, it wasn't at that moment when he saw his brothers that he forgave them. He had forgiven them long before that. They just never knew it. And you can hear the fear in, the, fear in their voice. This is happening to mm. us because of what we did to Joseph. So Joseph was free of bitterness because of the forgiveness that he offered to his brothers when they never asked for it. But the mm. brothers were free when they realized that's what Joseph had done because of God, he had offered them forgiveness. So they also, 20 years later, were able to experience that freedom. So forgiveness is incredible regardless of the other person. What, what would have happened when Joseph was sold to that passing by caravan? If he looked up at his brother and said, hey, I forgive you for this, do you think they would have even taken him seriously? Mm-hmm. No, probably not. Hmm. But in essence, hmm. that's what he did. He forgave them at that moment. And yet when they received it 20 years later and understood that they were forgiven, what did they deserve? They deserved to be thrown in prison. They deserved to be sold. They deserved death. But isn't that true what God did in sending his son to earth? He took the punishment that we deserved and said, I forgive John Page. I forgive David. And so it's incredibly freeing when we experience the forgiveness of salvation. And because of that, we have the best example to offer others forgiveness. And I think Joseph, and you alluded to this, Joseph is such a vivid example because it's so extreme what his brothers did to him. And I know people listening, people that you, that some of you that are listening, you're walking with other people. There's extreme things that have happened in your life. Nothing is more, no, nothing is so extreme that forgiveness cannot be offered. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Um, it's interesting. I think it was Nelson Mandela, your former president in South Africa, that talked about uh, bitterness. Uh, like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy will die. Um, it's it's interesting how it destroys us from the inside, and the quicker we let it go, the better. But here's question number two, as we continue to digest uh, this passage. Is it possible that God was working in the lives of the brothers as well? Here is why I'm beginning to think God must have done, and yes, he did, some remarkable work in their hearts that is not on record. We only see the results of that work. Why? Because they go through this test again 
as administered by Joseph, and they seem to excel. They seem to have a genuine love for their younger brother. They seem to be not lying anymore about their family. They seem to be telling the truth. So in as much as God is working through Joseph, he also worked through the brothers' lives, that we see a refined piece of work of these brothers at the end uh, of this story. I mean, these men that we're talking about became the tribes of Israel. They literally became tribes. Um, it's it's interesting. We, we, we see Joseph's grace, but we also see God's grace towards the brothers, that he eventually gives them this level of leadership in their family and eventually the nation as we know it uh, today. Do you have any words, page of encouragement to the Judas among us who might be <laughs> the betrayer present here with us that's feeling like it's too late. I don't think God can work in my life anymore. I think we see God's grace in the brothers' lives in as much as we see Joseph's grace towards the brothers. But anyone here who might be discouraged about their past life and they don't think they can either ask for, for forgiveness or even any way in which God can work in their life ever again. Do you have any words of encouragement for them as we come to the end of our show? It really is interesting if you take time to look at Judah and Reuben and even Benjamin, the youngest, and you do, you see the other brothers' personalities come out. Just as was mentioned earlier with the TV series that's out, that's The Chosen. I'm not just trying to promote that. I've just been watching that. And so, so much of the disciples' interaction as a family, as followers of Jesus during his human ministry, uh, is very similar to these brothers in their human interaction. They knew the worst of each other. They also knew the best of each other. And they definitely were changed as God worked in their lives. Uh, no one, no one is locked into how they used to be. Everybody has that freedom to change, to allow God to bring out change in their life. Brothers fight maybe more than anybody else, but it's a beautiful picture when we get down to, I think it's the end of chapter, uh, I've lost my chapter references, but end of chapter 45, when Joseph walks around and he kisses every one of his brothers and greets them. Everything that had been in the past for the last 20, 21 years was put aside. And the reality was their family, their brothers, allowing each other to change instead of forcing them to be the way they used to be. And you're right, it sets up and we're going to look at some of this past history on Friday. We're actually going to jump backwards in the story and see how that connects in because we're not... We're affected by our past, but we're not controlled by our past. We are mm -hmm. free, and we're going to see even more of that freedom on Friday as we look at some of those aspects. Uh, but just really powerful walking through this life of Joseph. And I think it's incredible. As a man, as an African man, he shares that he weeped so loudly they heard it in the next mansion. And he was weeping because he was reconnecting. Forgiveness was being shown to his brothers, and his brothers received him. They accepted his humility, even though he was the head of all of Egypt. And they, through all that, they saw God's hand. Powerful. If you're going to listen to a podcast before you go to before bed, before you go to bed, you can as well grow in your faith. Cabin Devils, your number one live podcast. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. East African time.